Got time for a quick story? Imagine if your career takes you to studio that involves Neil Diamond, Barbara Streisand, Carly Simon, Three Dog Night, Steely Dan, um, the Beatles. Not as the Beatles, but the four Beatles at various points, sometimes combined. Eagles coming into the studio. And that's just a, a, a few of the people that you end up coming across in your life as you go into a studio to, in some cases, record and produce them. In most cases, engineer and mix these recordings to make them sound good when the public consumes this music. That's the career of Bill Schnee. has been involved with so many recordings throughout the history of pop and rock music. And he wrote a book about his career, an incredible book called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. I get to talk today to Bill Schnee. It is essentially encyclopedic, if you will, in terms of the history of of music, pop and pop rock music. A lot of stuff is covered because there are a lot of songs that you were involved with. The, the effect that one gets when reading the book is, oh, you were involved with this song, this song, this song, and this song. In fact, last night I was talking to my mom about this, and my mom grew up with, with this music. It was like her prime time, a lot of this stuff. Um, and I'm telling, and I'm explaining, yeah, I've got this interview with Bill Schnee. He did this song and this. He's like, she's like, what? That? And that and that. And that's really the effect you get being involved with so, so, so much music. Is is there ever was there ever a point in your career where you kind of stopped and got and sort of self-evaluated and went, I'm working with all of these folks. Like, was there ever a crystallization point considering this is all happening in real time as all these other artists are coming up? As well, we don't have the luxury of 50 years of history to look back and go, you worked with Barbara Streisand, you worked with Three Dog Night. Well, at the time, they were either somewhat established or, or newcomers. Right. Well, yeah, um, it, it, it happened. You know, the, the first Ringo album was probably the first moment uh, that I took a look at what was going on and went, uh-oh, what's this? Because here I was in the room with three of the Beatles recording uh, the uh, first time and only time after the breakup that they did that. And, uh, you know, I thought at the time, wow, it's all downhill from here. But uh, fortunately, it wasn't. But uh, yeah, you know, you're just going along working. You don't, you know, you don't think about it. I mean, I know, you know, that this artist w was famous and I know that this was a hit and all that kind of stuff. I'll tell you when it really hit me funny enough was a couple of years ago when I was about two thirds of the way through writing the book. And I took a little break from the writing. And uh, when I came back to it, I went to the uh, index uh, and the table of contents and just kind of started glancing down the table of contents. And I went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> just sort of hits you at a, at a certain point, um, which, uh, with regard to the Beatles, which Beatle in their solo career do you think had the best... I'll say the best engineered, the best mixed sounding solo material. Which one did the best job of polishing the output of they did? So not necessarily deciding which one had the best artistic, because good luck with that. But which one sounded the best on the other end from your ears as a mixer and an engineer? Well, that's a tough question because stylistically, uh, you know, Lennon was so... Uh... You know, the, the sound of his records kind of matches him uh, on the, uh, you know, kind of aggressive, a uh, little bit left of center, whereas Paul's stuff being much more melodic is much you know easier to swallow. The biggest surprise, of course, was George Harrison, who in the solo career, you know, came forward, obviously, you know, uh, ostensibly perhaps being held back a little bit by <laughs> the uh, writing prowess of the other two. Uh, but he, he definitely stepped forward in a major way, which, uh, I, of course, I was glad to see. When you you write in the book the, the, the chapter on the Ringo album and talking about how all 
what if Paul could have come over, but there was there were the, the issues of getting him across across the pond and everything. And again, read the book if you want to know exactly what was going on there. But your take, having interacted with them, seen their dynamic, I love the thing. Again, I don't want to reveal too much, but the, about when some of them start working together and what you observe about what happens as as musically as that happens. So. Yeah. The the obviously unanswerable question of if the Beatles had ever reunited. Well, you, from your perspective, working with them in the booth and working with them in the studio. I mean, if if they had had an opportunity, do you think it might have been dependent on the time, like in the mid seventies, versus say if Lennon is still alive? Maybe something happens in the eighties. Do you think how well would that have worked from a musical perspective? Take out the whole. How would the Beatles have been? That's tough to evaluate, but but musically, how well do you think they would have worked, and would it have de- depended on when in their solo careers they would have decided to start up another go of it? Yeah, I think for sure. I think the the okay, backing up a little bit. When I did the Ringo album '73, uh, as I said, you know, they were basically my take on that has always been that the uh, other three, <clears throat> excuse me, the other three were giving Ringo a leg up. They knew their solo careers were going to probably do pretty well. Uh, but Ringo, not being the songwriter that the other three were, that they would give him a, a leg up and kind of help him along. And so everybody did jump in. And as you alluded to there, and I don't mind giving out a little too much, that, <laughs> that Paul had a drug bust in the United States. So he was not allowed in the country for a certain amount of time. And because of this, because of this uh, leg up idea concept of mine for Ringo, I have a hunch that if he could have come in at that point in time, that there could have been a reunion right then. I think three years was enough for the bad blood to have settled. And it was probably a pretty good, darn good time uh, under the guise, again, of, you know, let's help Ringo. And the next thing you know, they got in the studio and, wow, this is fun. Remember this? Uh, I think the farther, the more time that went on, my guess is that they got used to, especially Lennon, well, all three, actually, they got used to being the uh, captain of their ship where they didn't have to, you know, they, they ran the show for them, what, what they felt was best. So my guess is that the more time that went on, it was probably not, not as good a time. Yeah. Speaking of, of Lennon, I've, I've always liked the sound of Double Fantasy and the, the I mean, the, the production, the engineering on it sounds really good. I'm not sure exactly. But, well, what, what's your take on, on how that album was put together? Again, how it, not the music on it. But the sound, it sounds really good to my ears, especially for its time coming out in 1980 or so. Yeah, I, but I think, honestly, uh, you know, I, I've, I learned this a long time ago. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm just going to say that when a lot of people say that something sounds really good, they're not really talking about the actual sound of the record. They're talking about the music. If you talk to a, a mastering engineer, uh, nine, nine times out of 10, uh, that sounds really good. He's talking about the actual sound. Recording engineer can go either way, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but, you know, uh, I'd, ha- I'd have to listen back to it again. I mean, it, the music is what, you know, and I've always said, I, I think like a musician much more than an engineer. So, uh, you know, I, I really like the way that that album sounds for sure. <laughs> Do you think so? So then around that time, and that's when that's when it seemed as though we maybe got to this this ideal peak of. Of the of recorded output, especially via analog right before digital, and we'll go into the, the whole digital thing in just a bit. But around that time, some of the albums that were coming out, the Christopher Cross solo album, um, Middleman you, that you were working on with Boz Skaggs, that double fantasy, finally getting away from sort of the, I guess for lack of a better term, something that would sound good on AM radio, but now stuff that had to sound good on FM radio, stuff that would sound good through speakers. Was that, and you may have just kind of spoken to that, was that more a matter of technological progression in the actual equipment or was it the quality of the musicians playing got to the point where you had quality enough or high quality enough musical parts arrangements and then in turn there was an expectation of let's make sure this sounds really good to the ears because we want the music to come through how do you evaluate when that sort of hidden where again i think around 79 80 were the first times you really heard something that sounds it doesn't sound dated anymore it sounds like you could almost recreate it today yeah well for sure the you know it's interesting because 
we were recording uh, exclusively on tape back then, magnetic tape. And magnetic tape really didn't make any progression, uh, any serious progression from the time we got it from the Germans to the, you know. And so, uh, but, but I, speaking for myself, and I think a lot of other people, you know, we were still figuring out uh, what kind of sounds we could make in the studio, you know, with multi-track, that uh, the big multi-track starting like 16, especially 24, and by the years you're talking, we would lock two analog machines together. So we had 48, 46 really needed a track for Simpty to guide them. But we had, we had a lot, a lot of tracks. And um, trying to, uh, you know, that, that whole process allowed for the studio, the, the control room, to become more and more important in the, in the sound of a record. And actually, even in the, in the making of the record, more than the sound. But we were learning uh, the whole time uh, about, you know, I'm speaking about what, what would make a better sounding record. Um, and uh, for myself, I was always looking for uh, everything that it took, and starting with equipment, like microphones and uh, uh, consoles, studio consoles and, and uh, whatnot, to get a, a sound that was, for me, I wanted a sound that was punchy. I wanted it to, you know, to, to really move some air on the bottom end. I wanted a top end that was kind of transparent. And you see that, that, that kind of sound in general developing through the 70s, I think. So not just me, but with a lot of people. But there really wasn't, you know, other than effects, we, we started getting more and more effects people were developing to use in the production of music and the, as engineers. But uh, I don't know that that's what you're talking about. I just think that it was a, kind of a natural progression as we developed the uh, art. Yeah, exactly. And art un unwittingly goes to the next thing about Art Garfunkel. And <laughs> not necessarily an effect per se, but the drum sound, the detuned drum sound. And you mentioned this in the chapter on Breakaway. And the sound that we hear on Art Garfunkel's version of... I only have eyes for you, which has always struck me as one of the first. The, it, it it sounds like one of the first of that, like like a, a like a different. I, I don't want to keep going back to the word sound. The word is 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 just is away from me at the moment. But something that that has a more of a contemporary sheen, and that seems to be one of the first examples. That uh, chronologically that I've heard, you know, when I hear that song play between that, the the reverb, the kind of ethereal sound of the of the roads and and the guitar and everything, and of course Art Garfunkel's vocals, yeah. it sounds like the sort of thing that that could, you could have told me it came out in 1981, and I'd believe it. For where yeah. it comes out in 1975, like wow, it seems like the first of its kind, and the drum part. The snare really is the one that drives it home, at least to my ears. When you hear this recorded output, how it's been, how, how Richard Perry's produced it, and you're mixing this, your thoughts on, on that sound and also explain a bit of how that was created. Like I said, you mentioned it in the book. How was that? How did they create that yeah. sound? Okay. Uh, first of all, I love that you pull that record out of the hat because... Uh, if you were to ask me, as many have, what's your favorite album you've ever done, this, that, I, I, no, there isn't a favorite album. There couldn't be one. <laughs> but if there was a group, that would be in the group, for sure. I think Richard did a masterful job on that uh, on that record. I'm just very, very, very pleased with uh, what he did and actually what I did, and, and most of it anyway. But to the, your point, the um, uh, that, that was the first thing we mixed on the album and it was actually recorded by the uh great old engineer brooks arthur friend of mine and uh they went for they went for it that's the main thing uh richard richard had an idea in his head and and he went for it and uh to his credit and it was as you point out it was this uh and i detuned or very very deep uh snare sound and I'm not sure if they used a parade snare or not. We've done, uh, we, uh, uh, Nigel Olson and Elton John's band had done that, uh, used a, an extra thick parade snare that that obviously has a very deep tone, records very low. And that's what it sounds like. I don't remember if, if I asked Richard at the time if it was or it wasn't. But then in the mix, uh, as I heard the song, you know, it's a little bit of uh, sweet and sour almost because that drum 
I mean, the rest of the record, if you take that drum out, is very ethereal. Those sounds like you mentioned with the guitar and the, uh, the uh, roads and, uh, and whatnot. And so when I mixed it, uh, I did, I, I caught that vibe really, you know, strongly. And so what I did was I, I made great use, I believe, uh, extensive use anyway, of reverb, uh, uh, on, especially on his voice. But I was really writing and, and, and customizing the reverb on his voice. And then with that snare, I actually, I actually took it down even more. I had a box at the time, a little hardware box that did an odd thing. It would take, uh, you would select a frequency and it would take that frequency down. Not, not the way, uh, I mean, it would actually detune it and it would not take the overtone series. It just took that fundamental that you were sitting on. Uh, so I, I found, I just tweaked around with it till it felt really good and just, you know, at that lower thing and brought that in along with the snare drum, which made it even heavier down low. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, I think it worked out really great. And, uh, and I thought, uh, it sounded really good on the radio as well. Did you ever have to mic up and, and uh, Simmons drums, electronic drums at any point in your career? Embarrassingly, yes. <laughs> I've always wondered about how that works well. Uh, I just happened, I, I found a, 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 a Simmons kit on eBay a, almost two decades ago. Uh, and it's, it, I think it's an SDS 8. Um, don't have any symbols with it, but I've always been curious. Like, I'll, I'll play the pads, and of course, it just, I mean, it kills your wrists. But I'm going, okay, but how on recordings you get the symbols with that, but when you're playing it, it sounds, you know, like it doesn't sound anything like a drum. It, it, I don't know if you could hear that in the background, but it, it might as well be the same thing. It, sure. it's, it's, it's this hard rubber pad. So as you're trying to record that the electronic inputs, you're not miking the surface, but you also got to take in symbols, which are live, depending on what it is, depending on the artist. And of course, each artist had customization. At that point, pre-modern electronic sets, in those days... How was that accomplished to make that sound good uh, on the finished products that people don't hear? How, how do you mix all of that together? Well, it, it actually is uh, pretty simple and uh, in one sense, almost easier than a, a real drum set with uh, toms, with real toms, as opposed to those pads that because in the control room, you know, in the control room, if we have overhead mics, there's the, there's all the symbols. And then uh, you have individual outputs, direct outputs from the Simmons that with the Tom. So you just balance them up and it works. It works really well. It's 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 again, it's almost easier than having Tom Toms on it. That said, I, I, I don't remember if I ever did a full Simmons kit. I do remember that uh, my good friend Jeff Picaro and I, we, we were both laughing at the Simmons when it came out. And at the same time, you know, he had to, he bought a set, you know, I mean, uh, and I, we, I used it one time just as an effect, uh, an effect kind of sound that you could have done in later years with a synthesizer, uh, or even back then, probably I think about it, but on a record with, uh, Colin Blundstone, the great singer from the zombies, I produced him and we had a cut and he was playing, a. There was there was just a space for a little, Pew! and so <laughs> he said, yeah, let's try this on it. And there it was. But yeah, it only made it made it in, uh, uh, you know, as an effect on a few records just like that. I heard one the other day. I can't a disco record. Uh, I heard I remember hearing it on. But anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> speaking of those effects, was there when it's when it came time to mix? Was there an effect that was used on an instrument or a voice in the production where now it's your turn to mix where you either went, okay, I like that this gets used, or vice versa, where you go, oh, great, these guys use this. Well, I got my job to do, but but you're going, why did they use this in the first place, and now it's on the finished, now, now I got to put this all together. Which, was there one both positive or negative on any instrument or any voice, any part? Well, um, uh, the first one... The first one that comes to mind is the uh, program that we all bought the box that did it, uh, the gated reverb, <laughs> which, uh, which, uh, you know, just doggone it. Uh, I mean, it was unique and it was new, 
uh, kind of take off from in the air tonight. Uh, the Phil Collins, uh, that you know, whatever that great drum fill, and so on. But uh, we all ended up using it at one time or another, or two or three, and then uh, just got completely hackneyed. It's kind of funny now that you know, in the digital era with uh, computers, we have things called plugins, which is uh, the takes the place of a hardware box for for manipulating sound, and. Uh, Darn if they haven't made a, a faithful reproduction of, of that box so that you can have it again if you want it. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of funny because uh, uh, I, I'm pretty I'm sure I used it on drums at some point. I, everyone did it for one reason or another. But it was actually kind of interesting on other things where you, you don't hear it like that, like on a certain kind of guitar. You won't hear it like that because because it doesn't have the same attack that uh, that a drum has, you know, attack sustain to go away, keeps going. So, but, but that, that would be one for sure. Another one that occurs to me was when the first harmonizer came out, that was where you could put pitch into it and, and, it, uh, and it would change the pitch up or down. And, and, uh, that was, I don't know who did it first, but I was just listening to an early record I did in the seventies where I had that on the piano for a detuned piano sound. It was a very easy way if, if you wanted a piano to sound like it, uh, you know, it'd been in a bar for 30 years and hadn't been tuned. <laughs> um, on on the topic of, um, um, just blanked a moment. Okay, yeah, on the, on the topic of different, making something sound different than what you would expect. I was reading the other day about Kiss by Prince. And I did not know this until literally this past Friday because I was playing playing the song here on, on Greatest Hits 98.1. And I learned about how what I had always presumed for the past 35 years was a synth part in the background that da, 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 was apparently an acoustic guitar that was triggered through, I think it was either a drum machine. I, I can't remember exactly what, but it's one. But they, But you could not recreate that part on a keyboard because the way that it was that it was again triggered that 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 oh. sort of effect was there and I know you you've told the story and it's in the book about like for example the multiple tape parts like the I think it was actually the the Art Garfunkel the if only I have eyes for you um I only have eyes for you that all the splicing and all of those that were put together studio trickery was there a favorite bit of studio trickery either as you as producer or that you saw as you're mixing where you go Okay, there's a part people are never going to figure out. It was like this instrument, but it was channeled. It was triggered this way, or this is a voice. It doesn't sound like a human voice, but it's actually someone singing this. Was there anything where you go, wow, if only people knew how this was created, but no one's ever going to figure it out hearing it on the radio or on an album? Uh, I can't think of You've stumped me, I think. <laughs> I can't think of one offhand. There's a and that's the thing. There you there's not they're not always out there. I mean, I know there's like the um the Paul McCartney kazoo sound, <laughs> um, which always comes to mind that that again it sounds like another instrument, but that was actually him doing that. I can't uh, correct yeah, me. Yeah, and we just distorted it. And so, okay, and and I I apologize for this. Uh, another my my mind is drawing a blank right here as I'm sitting here, and I wish I could just bring the book up and bring it. So that's a, that was in that in that chapter about about recording about that part. So you were there when that was. Yeah, I did. That it. was yeah. okay. That that's one of that is one of my all time favorite stories about something that sounds like one thing or another. So what exactly is he doing with his voice to create that? <laughs> I, I can't do it very well, but he's making the noise with his mouth. And by the time it got distorted, uh, just right, that's what it sounded like. Huh. It started off to be just his voice. And then I thought maybe, hmm, let's see what happens if I do this. And uh, and that wasn't, you know, that wasn't, I mean, uh, how do I say this? You know, that, that wasn't the norm for me is trying to distort things. Right. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny because it, it now in the, in, <laughs> since digital, since we went to digital, uh, one of the comments that pe people say about digital is it's too clean. You know, it doesn't have, because tape has a little bit of distortion in it. It's it mm -hmm. just by its nature. So um, now there's all kinds of plugins 
that uh, that will have offer a distortion plugin. So it's been it's kind of funny because I've said that I spent the first 30 years of my career trying to get rid of distortion and the last 20 years deciding which one to use <laughs> because it's become part of that palette that you keep talking about things that amount to that about the the palette that we have as especially as engineers to uh, uh, change the sound because everybody wants something, would like to have something unique, different, that kind of thing. So to whatever extent we can do that kind of thing, it works out great. But that was, uh, yeah, in, in 1973, typically weren't looking for distortion, but that was just a situation that seemed to, to make sense, you know, to try to get it to not sound like what it was, which sounded like a human voice. Mm-hmm. Speaking of distortion, uh, your commentary on early digital sound, not that it was distorted, but that it didn't sound like you would expect with digital. The whole notion of digital being perfect and pristine and clean. And that was the the that was one of the appeals of the compact disc. It's all on digital now and it will sound perfect. Well, I, that was the goal anyway, back in the yeah. early 80s and it wasn't quite there. So what what it it, failed it, miserably? Yeah, I know. So what what exactly was and again, you described it, but go into a little bit more detail about like bitrate and such and why those early digital recordings, they didn't have as clear of, they, they didn't sound as clear as a lot of the analog recordings of that same era of the early yeah. to mid 1980s. Yeah, no, it, 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 it I, I suppose the, uh, if, if I'll cut it, I'll cut the industry some slack in that, you know, hey, this, this is incredible. And, and indeed it is, or has the potential. Unfortunately, I think we just went to it a little too early. With some um, with some assumptions that just weren't true, um, the uh, early digital, yeah, absolutely to me, to my ears, did not sound as good as the best analog you could get, and and uh, it was among other things, it had a kind of a harshness on the top end. We had another problem. There have been many problems that that it didn't deserve. One of them was the early. When, when the record companies went to it, oh boy, look, a new revenue stream. Uh, so let's uh, remaster all of these albums in, in uh, compact discs so that people will go out and buy them again so they can play them in their car as well as home and all of that great advantage. And instead of, uh, in many, many cases, instead of going back to the original mastering engineer, they would just have somebody on board work for the company that would take those masters in and he would map quote, master them to digital. And so a great number of them were not were not done to the uh, to the good extent they could have been done at the time. The other thing that developed real quickly right after that was the fact that because they can, they do uh, digital has this one unbelievable dynamic range, which is a wonderful thing, much more than an LP could ever dream of. But louder has always been better. And uh, I blame that on uh, back in the 50s, 60s, in the 60s for sure, when the 45 was the big selling tool, the you know seven inch 45, the promotion man would go into a radio station and say, here, you know, while the disc jockey's playing, he puts the record on and turns around and says, what do you got today? And he shows him, oh, I got this great single. And he puts it on his second turntable and just plays it in the control room. And he goes, wow, it's not as loud as that. <laughs> it's what I'm playing and not as loud because, you know, but to the human ear, loudness will always be perceived as, oh, that sounds better. That sounds better. So because they can, they do. And we took this incredible hundred and something dy- dB dynamic range and started uh, cheating it and pushing it right to the top where we only use 5% of what's of what it, uh, it has 100% available. But the main thing uh, uh, that adds into that, I think, is the fact that the early converters weren't as good. Remember that the way I always start this conversation is remember that these things here are analog Mm -hmm. (laughs) and moving air, which is where, you know, all microphones pick up. It's all analog. So to go into digital and to come out of digital, because it's going to go in if you know, and it's going to come out because until we have chips in our head, uh, perish that day (laughs) that that'll be able to accept it. Uh, uh, You know, it's going to start analog. It's going to end analog. So the, those converters, we've learned a lot in the last 35 years about converters. And what else we learned was that this whole, there's a thing called the Nyquist frequency, which is what limited the uh, uh, top end of, of a CD at 20,000 cycles because the human ear can't hear beyond that. 
So that's where the 44-1, uh, the 1644-1, which is what <laughs> CDs are, that's where that came from. Well, whereas it's true that the human ear can't hear above 20,000, uh, the filtering that takes place to, to get rid of everything else uh, above that and some other factors uh, cause that harshness that I just spoke of earlier that, that was there and still is to a degree, uh, even worse in some cases because, again, now that we're cramming all this level on it. So the CD never really got a fair shake, but the, the, the idea of uh, digital today, if we've, we've increased the bit rate, from 16 to 24, we've increased the sampling rate from 44 to 192 and even beyond that. But uh, today, what I can unequivocally say that a 24-192 recording, uh, I've done many of them live, uh, I, I, is absolutely better than anything analog could ever deliver. The problem, of course, is still getting it. Uh, you know, the unfortunate thing, and it is the problem, is that you know now we're streaming at again and there are a couple of high-end streaming companies that are very good uh, and getting better all the time but because most spotify and the light they're like uh we're streaming at a very low bit rate so but it, it, it'll it, i'm hoping it'll come back in a in a major way i'm sure it will at least in the streaming world it's on its way was there a, an album that you knew was recorded digitally where you went okay they finally caught up to analog and at any point in the last 40 years we went all right they got it they, they finally figured it out and digital is going to be able to coexist with analog and in, in sonic quality um well i'm pretty harsh i'm pretty bad on uh, mean to digital to this day <laughs> remember what i just said though <laughs> uh um so I, I think you know when, when we got to when we got to 96k recording and now we're talking about the digital recording um, in computers. When we got to 96k recordings with really good converters, uh, I think we've met met the trade-off. One of the hard things to to talk about with with people sometimes is the fact that you have to remember that analog from the time we got it. Uh, that was well, back up. It has a sound. It has a sound. You know, depending on how fast you're running the analog tape. If you were kind of record at 15 IPS, the bottom end is pretty darn good. It's solid, and, and the bass and kick and everything mm -hmm. come back good. But the top end is not very silky. If you record at 30 IPS, the top end is nice and silky, but the bottom end isn't focused. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it has. It, you know, it can't take high level. Um, certain instruments we had to learn, like a tambourine with the peak, the real peak value of a tambourine or a muted trumpet. If you try to put that where the needle goes up to zero, it'll come back horribly distorted. We had all these problems with it. Well, digital got rid of a, a lot of those. And um, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, th that sound of music thing is, is always tough to get across because it's, that sound has been added. So when you go to digital, and even the stuff that I've done at 24192, um, uh, that is the, was the first time, when I, the first one of those I did, where what was coming through the glass, as we call it, you know, while live musicians are out there playing, through the glass, and I push the button that goes through the digital, which means analog to digital, digital to analog, I couldn't hear one artifact sounded exactly like what I was hearing. That was the first time ever. And uh, without question, then, you know, I never heard anything like that with analog. If you played a, if a band was out there playing, they would come in the control room, you'd rewind the tape and play it back. Do I hear what I just heard? No. The, it, it's got some compression that it didn't have before. I'm not saying it's bad, depending on how we would use that to our advantage. How, how, how hard you hit the tape would determine, you know, maybe on a kick and a snare, you'd want some compression. So you'd let it go, go, go into the red a little bit whatever, but you, it'll have compression. It's got noise for sure. It's got uh, that, what I talked about, the high end at, at 15 isn't so great, but if you're at 30, the low end isn't so great. It's definitely not a mirror. And what's even worse is that in the later years, later, starting in late seventies, the tape emulsions wouldn't stay, wouldn't, it wouldn't keep. If you yeah. record on analog, you put it away for a month, you went back and played it. Wow, that, that sounded better when I recorded it. And that 
that was before you that was if you put it away let alone if you started doing overdubs on it where you ran through a pinch roller being you know abused you're abusing the tape mm -hmm. and and let's be honest if you're recording on track five what about that erase current on four and six you don't think maybe a little might be bleeding over time yeah who knows <laughs> all i know is that over time the tapes didn't sound as anywhere near as good uh with extensive overdubbing as they did the day you recorded them so uh, sure digital relieved changed a lot in that regard solved a lot of problems best instrument or instruments to mix or even record which ones did did you most do you most have most perk up with to to work on in the studio um well anything that i can halfway play uh <laughs> which would be pianos real pianos i i'm i'm a stickler on real pianos which of course starts with a good real piano uh, uh, and, uh, and drums because I'm a real wannabe drummer. And, uh, I, I, I figured out early on that drums being kind of the backbone of pop music, R and B music and so on, that they're pretty darn important and had, you know, and I worked really hard to develop how, what kind of sound to get on them. Uh, th that kind of thing, of course, you know, I mean, but those, those would probably stick out the most. That said, I love recording orchestras and, uh, that I don't play. I mean, I started on trumpet and then went to sax, but recording orchestras is an absolute blast for me and uh, especially strings you know nothing like a big gorgeous string section is there a particular one particular orchestra or one particular project or a few particular projects perhaps really well stand no out it's just uh, like i've done uh what i'm speaking specifically of is movie soundtracks where we were you know at some of the big sound stages uh in la where where you have a full 60 70 80 piece sometimes orchestra um, and uh, I always tell people uh, that, um, that, you know, it's actually easier to record one of them than it is a, a big rhythm section, and they can't believe it. How can you say that? And I said, because if, if you have a, a for an orchestra, you, if you have a good sounding room, that's important. And you, of course, you have a good orchestra, but on film dates, they've got the best musicians in Hollywood. Uh, and you have good mics, which they all do. And a great, now if the notes on the paper and the conductor conducting are both great, it's a walk in the park. If the orchestrator has done his job, all the pieces are going to fit together beautifully. And it's just, you put the mics up and just sit back and enjoy it for the most part. Uh, of course, there are those times when the orchestration isn't quite right, even if the writing itself is good. <clears throat> and then you might have to dig a little bit because, uh, but, but, Typically, to record an orchestra, it's what's called a deca tree. It's three omnidirectional microphones that sit up about 10, 11 feet off the ground over the conductor's head. And those three omnis in a good room will capture 80% uh, of the orchestra, in, if it's, again, if it's well orchestrated. So, but there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing like it. The other thing I tell people when they come to visit when I'm doing a film score is, uh, they'll if they'll come in the control room, obviously, and we'll be listening. If there's a break, they say, "Oh, Bill, that sounds so beautiful." I said, "No, no. When they go back, go out and sit in the room for ten minutes and listen to the orchestra there. Then come back in here and listen. You'll <laughs> see just how bad an engineer I am." <laughs> Academy Awards were last night, actually. Interesting that we're having this discussion this Monday morning, that right after the Oscars happened. What, which? Which composers slash arrangers are most impressing you in the film world nowadays? Oh, well, and, and there's a lot. Uh, Marconi, who just recently passed, was great. Um, my good friend, James Newton Howard, who was nominated last night and again didn't win. Uh, um, uh, he's he's in this modern world. He's fantastic. I, I just think, of course, John Williams, the, you know, what can you say? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's they're some of the really great. Of contemporary pop musicians, which ones, not even necessarily into April of 2021, but at least in recent time, which pop musicians are doing the best output either musically and or they're doing a good job of producing something beyond, hey, I'm sitting at a laptop. I mean, I'm sounding a little derisive here, but sitting at a laptop, I'm just going to churn out whatever I've got right here and not even bother making it sound good. I just put put it out. Who is seems to be taking the time to do it right, for lack of a better term, and knows their knows their background, or at least knows enough to 
or has a record company that knows enough to make sure that it sounds good between music and or the whole package? Well, uh, in terms of outstanding musicians in that category, Mark Knopfler would be right there for me. Uh, and not because I've d done quite a few albums with him, but because he is one of, on everybody's list, he's one of the best something guitar players in the world. Uh, John Mayer is another one. Uh, Mayer is quite interesting. Mark has moved around a little bit. Uh, you know, real artists will do that. Mayer, who I haven't worked with, uh, boy, he jumps around all over the place and uh, uh, stylistically, which is quite interesting, quite impressive. Um, uh, there's a couple for you. Yeah, those all sounding good. What uh, what projects are you working on now, and what what's coming up for you in terms of um, in terms of musical projects? Yeah, there, there's one that I'm very very excited about. Uh, the only country record I ever produced was uh, 25 years ago. She was a kid then. Her name is Mandy Barnett, and um, she is, as I said in the book one of the best singers I ever put a microphone in front of. And obviously with my career, that's saying something. There have been some great singers, phenomenal singers, but she is one of them. And she has just done a record uh, of the songs, a Torch album with the songs from the, I've been saying it's the last Billie Holiday record. It's actually second to the last, but I think it's her best record. Um, and so it's all these Torch songs of, uh, and, and it was arranged by Sammy Nestico, uh, an old school arranger of the ilk that he didn't do movie scores, but he's of that ilk that of the of those great arrangers. And uh, how old? Well, let's see. He was 95 when he did the album, uh, when he arranged it two years ago. He's since passed away. But I did that album with a uh, 60 piece orchestra and this incredible songstress singing live. And those songs and those it's Sammy's arrangements and her vocals is is just I think it's magic. Hmm. It's called Every Star Above and Mandy Barnett. And it'll be out uh, this month, actually. Actually, no, next month. It's out next month, May. Okay, good. I'll definitely have to listen to, to that one. Anyone listening to this will definitely have to listen to that as well. Last question. Speaking of listening, if you could take one work in your oeuvre over time and put it at the top of your website and say, listen to this. This is this is the one that's most special to me. This is the one. What would that be? Uh, okay, when, when, when artists are asked, you know, what's the favorite thing you've ever done? I, you hear it all the time. Well, I'm going to tell you, but you've probably never heard of it or you've probably never seen it or, pro you know, whatever, or it didn't do well at the box office or whatever. And uh, such is the case with, for me, I guess, with this one. Um, I did an album I mentioned earlier with Colin Blundstone, the phenomenal singer from The Zombies. And when I was looking for songs for him, I, uh, a friend of mine gave me a Murray Head album that had the song Never Even Thought. And it doesn't often happen uh, when I hear a song, uh, you know, either uh, that someone has written or that I'm looking for songs for an artist. But it did happen in this case where as soon as I heard the song, I heard Colin in my head. I heard Colin singing it. And moreover, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. And I had the guys over uh, to the house the night before we started. The guys meaning the band I had put together, which, uh, who, which included, by the way, the great James Newton Howard that I just mentioned, as, who has gone on to become this incredible film composer. At that time, he was just uh, coming off. He had been Elton John's second keyboard player. And uh, I showed them... And Jeff Picaro, my was on the, my great friend Jeff Picaro, who's no longer with us, was on drums. And I, I, when I played, I played some of the songs we were going to record for Colin. And when I came to Never Even Thought, I, I got, I remember getting all animated and telling him what I was hearing, how this was going to go there, and da da da. And so when we hit the studio, I didn't record it first. You should never record the most important things first. And uh, but when we got to it, I, uh, I did this. We got into the song, and I as sometimes happens, especially with me from mixing my own stuff, I tried too hard. Um, uh, I probably pushed the band a little too much and uh, it ended up taking about six, six or seven hours to get the track, which is a little long for me getting tracks normally. But I did get the track that I thought was great. And when the, when the guys left, I listened back to the earlier takes 
And at the end of one of the first takes, Jeff Beccaro, when the song ended, some as will happen, it was a, to be a fade out. And what will happen is at the end of fade outs, when musicians are just playing the fade over and over and over, they'll start goofing off. And they started goofing off and Jeff started doing these crazy drum fills, just nonsense. Mm -hmm. Except I went, wait a minute. And so I took those drum fills and went to the, the take, the last take that we had done, which was the preferred take for me. And amazingly, six hours, something like that earlier, they, he was in the leave it to Jeff, uh, no metronome, just his internal metronome. It was the exact mm -hmm. same tempo, cut them in, cut them into the real fade. And the next day when the guys came back, I overdubbed everybody onto now the new fade, which included these drum fills. And so it came out sounding like it was totally arranged that way when it really wasn't. And the keyboard work, piano and electric piano that James did on that song is absolutely brilliant. And then we uh, went to England to, Colin lives in England, we went to England to finish the album. And we did, uh, a, and James did an incredible string chart that we put on there. And uh, that's one of my favorite things that I've ever produced and hardly anyone's ever heard of it. And it's not on Spotify, I gotta get to them. It is on YouTube. It's called Never Even Thought by Colin Blundstone. And uh, the only problem with it uh, for me, and it's a big one, is uh, I tried way too hard on the mix. And I, every time, you know, I didn't, I don't listen to the things I've done for a long time after I've done them. But when I remember the first time and every time I've gone back to hear it, uh, I, uh, oh, if I could only get my hands on those faders and remix it, <laughs> you know, now that I'm more relaxed about it. But, you know, I, I'm, I find myself a little envious of anybody who got to work with Jeff Percaro. And all the stories I've heard, I listen to the Inside Musicast podcast. Well, that's been going on since before podcast was a thing. And they they will bring up Jeff Beccaro all the time. I do, you could probably have Jeff Beccaro stories that would take like consecutive, would probably go on for days and days and days. It's remarkable how many times he's he does these little things that considering his incredible talent. And I got to watch that half the thing that you did, the half hour um, drum instructional that's on YouTube with uh, his late brother. And I don't know who was playing the keyboard and that I haven't watched it yet. Um, I, I can't remember. But that one, yeah, it's that one from, uh, from um, yeah, like 1991, 1990, around that time. It's Somewhere in, there, yeah. Yeah, in your studio. And I watched a little bit of that during the prep. Um, and I went, all right, Luke, you got to take about a half hour and just devote yourself to watching this because it, it, just watching two minutes of it, you go, oh gosh, he's the absolute... I, I don't know how you like last last question where do you rank the drummers that and I think maybe you mentioned that towards the end of the book like best drummer to work with but but and I'm kind of le it's a leading question with regard to Jeff Percaro but how do you where do you rank Jeff Percaro all time in terms of drums and in terms of ingenuity well you know look uh, if I start naming drummers that I've worked with you know I mean uh, what are you going to say about Steve Gadd or right. uh or Simon Phillips, you know, uh, uh, Vinnie Caliuto, you know, you put, you take guys like Vinnie and um, Simon and, you know, Jeff couldn't do that. Jim Keltner. You know? I mean, what? Yeah. Keltner. Yeah. Uh, you know, tech, there's guys that are like technically insane like that. And then there's, and then there's groove and feel mm -hmm. and, and there's been, I've worked with, you know, I think just about every incredible drummer that's out there. Uh, and, so it's really, really rough. All I can tell you, and it makes it rough because I mean, I I, I would say that Jeff Picaro was my favorite, and and it's not it's not because we were friends. I mean, I think we became you know we became friends because I liked his drumming and I was hiring him early on. You know, just like Lukather, Steve Lukather. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I didn't even think about it until until I read his book where he and and then talked to him afterwards, and he you know he said you hired me when I was 19 years old. And I can't remember, Jeff was a little older than that when I hired him for the first time, but you know, we just became great friends. And I always, you know, I, I, you know, he was my favorite drummer for if, you know, nine times out of 10, you know, unless it was some reason not to, or, you know, like I said, if it needed something like a technician would do or something or something, but uh, because, of, because of groove, he had a feel, he caught, he talked, I talk about it in the book, he talked about having a, a groove, having a lope on it. And uh, it was a, a breathing thing, very difficult to, to describe and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that after his, I, I kind of always suspected it, but after his passing, I was at a party with his brother, Steve. And Steve introduced me to uh, somebody at the party. And uh, he said, this is so-and-so who is whatever, whatever. And 
This is Bill Schnee. He was Jeff's favorite engineer. <laughs> and uh, Oh, man. Well, the stories are, are, there's a whole lot of the stories in the book. Um, and again, anyone listening to this right now, read the book. You get a lot of Jeff Carr stories. You get a lot of other stories. They're all in there. It's it's that's part of the reason I didn't want to ask too many questions about the book itself because the book tells the story. And hint for anyone watching this: note the part where you can go online and read more because that's the next part I'm going to dive into, and I intentionally held off because I want I want to preserve all of that for later on. So read the book, Chairman at the Board, recording the soundtrack of a generation. Bill Schnee, considering all you've done, thank you for all the work you have done for creating the soundscape. I'm sitting here in the studio and I'm looking at the songs. What you're going to do literally is playing right now on our radio <laughs> station. No lie, it's got a minute 33 left to go on here. So as an example, yeah, you're all over the place and thank you for doing what you've done. Thank you for writing this book. It's very educational. Thank you for taking uh, time to, to chat with me and with us uh, today. And best of luck with all of the work you're going to be doing in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. What he has worked on is <laughs> it, it's stunning the amount of music he's done. Bill Schnee, his website is called, well, it's not called, the URL is BillSchnee.com, B-I-L-L-S-C-H-N-E-E, BillSchnee.com. Again, the book, I, I can't recommend the book strongly enough. Read it. Read it through. It'll give you a whole lot of info on the history of music and how it sounds from the music to how it comes out of your speakers and such. Um, and so there's a lot of education in that. You're going to learn a good amount from that, from uh, from Bill's book. Again, the name of the book is Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. This has been another edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. Thanks, as always, to... My employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for providing the facilities to do a lot of these interviews. You can watch and listen to these interviews, uh, watch them in some cases, at GreatestHits981.com. At the top of the page under Features, it says Interviews. Click there. Also, you can go to our YouTube channel to listen to and watch a lot of these interviews. This podcast, you can listen to the audio uh, at a lot of the usual podcast platforms. Subscribe so you find out about new episodes and rate it, preferably higher. That'll get more uh, news uh, around about uh, about this podcast. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.